G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, this is the Footyology Podcast Finals Week 2 Preview Edition. And uh, big week first up in finals, uh, eight teams became six uh, to get a week off this week of course through to the preliminary finals and four more slugging it out. So we'll lose another two this week and then it'll just be down to four. Two big semi-finals coming up Friday evening and Saturday, Friday evening. Geelong playing West Coast at the MCG. Saturday up at the Gabba, the Brisbane Lions taking on GWS. We'll have a full preview of both those games. Plenty to talk about first though on, um, it's fair to say, a fairly sombre week uh, for reasons which are apparent and we'll talk about. As I say, very good morning to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you, Finey? I'm well, Rowan. How are you? And I, I know you're well because I've spoke to you before we came on air. But, yeah, it's one of those weeks where you are reminded that the larger, the greater AFL family that includes clubs, that includes supporters, is very much a family, you know, is is at one when... You have the passing of such a, a well-liked figure and at one particular club or a couple of clubs, an important figure. Everybody speaks from the same page of the hymn book, don't they? they there really is a, a, a unity and a warmth that I'm sure has radiated to Danny's family that means a great deal in what would be very difficult times. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the, um, the football public um, sort of feel part of that as well often uh, on these sad sorts of occasions, which uh, is a good thing. It can be a, a very combative uh, industry and, and community uh, much of the time. But I think, um, you know, that's what we, I guess, you know, without being sort of um, cliched about it, we, you know, when we talk about what defines Australia and people mention mateship and stuff like that, I mean, these are the sorts of things we like to um, talk about, and we like to think this is how we act. You know, we pull together in a crisis and in in times of grief and stuff. And um, you know that it's been very heartening. But uh, look, the the football world also can't stand still. We've got a final series, and uh, there's things happening uh, beyond that off the field. Uh, the trade uh, landscape heating up as it does from very early in the piece, and uh, we will talk about plenty of that as well. Uh, We should also give our very fine sponsors a plug. Yeah, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, and that's where you find our great friends Andrew's Hamburgers, purveyors for the last 80 years of a magnificent product called The Hamburger. Nothing fancier than that, not the Royale Deluxe, not the Super Double Whiz Bang Super Mac or anything like that, just The Hamburger. 
Hamburger. Simple what? name. What's that uh, scene in Pulp Fiction where they're discussing? I've only seen in it. France. That's called a Royale. Royale with yeah, cheese. Yeah. Royale with cheese. <laughs> yeah, those uh, those scenes are etched in. Who's it? Uh, Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, that's it? right. Yeah, right. In movies. What's it called? Immortality. I yeah. mean, it's, they're famous scenes, aren't they? It, uh, and famous burgers, and rightly equally, so. I was going to say, equally famous is the immortalisation of the Andrews hamburger, and so too the extension on your house by Nick Spartels and Hardwick Bilko. And later on in the program, we've had a great response to our competition this week, where one of the entries manages to include Nick Spartels. It's a, great. I was about to mention that. Uh, now, if if you're listening, Nick... And, he does. Uh, he does every week. And uh, if you're Twice listening, boys and Andrews, uh, n- never has there been a greater demonstration of the power of advertising that uh, your fine establishments have become uh, synonymous with footyology, and in fact, I'd say part of the football vernacular. Correct. <laughs> yeah, very pleased to that. That did not sway the judges, by the way. We are yet to announce <laughs> we, the winner. We won't be compromised. Jeez, I could go a burger right now, though. <laughs> um, all right, let's not waste any more time. Let's get straight into it. On Footyology, Newsfeed. Yes, well, uh, plenty to talk about, but um, clearly the biggest uh, football story of the week is also the saddest um, football story of the week, and it is the passing of uh, St Kilda legend and former Richmond coach and media colleague to a lot of um, us, uh, Danny Frawley. And um, the ramifications of that, no doubt, will go on for some time, and um, it's it's still being played out in various Ways, i.e., last night St Kilda at their best and fairest um, had a, a very emotional evening and um, just little gestures and, and things that we've seen. Uh, for example, St Kilda fr- played a uh, a video montage um, at the BNF, which they put out on Twitter, and uh, yeah, I you know sort of had a look at that and go, oh, here I go again. You know, it was it's. And, um, you know, it's just, you, you can't help but react emotionally to the passing of a person who was a very emotional person, a real, you know, sort of wore his heart on his sleeve. And that that's one of the things I thought that made him so endearing. But from a news perspective, I, I guess in a footy sense, it was one of those, in a life sense, it was one of those, uh, where were you? moments wasn't it um because it was just such a shock um so h- how did you sort of find out what had happened well, i turned on the radio on sen after six o'clock and i was surprised to hear andrew mar's voice now he had obviously stayed back with one of the sams i'm not quite sure which one it was uh to talk about the passing and for about three sentences, they were talking about this person, and with each word, it became clear to me who it was. But the name wasn't ever stated, and I was, by the second sentence, hoping against hope that it wasn't Spud. Mm. Not that I was hoping that it was anybody, but they talked about his leadership, his captaincy, his time in the media, and I, I knew who it was. And then when the name was 
when they sort of said Danny. And it was a great shock, an enormous shock, albeit for somebody that had had made public his battles with depression, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. This was a great shock. And you see, for Danny Danny Frawley, through my time in the media, which still exists, but at both uh, Eddie had at the time and at the MCG, you have a meeting of different stations, radio stations, during the breaks over scones and other titbits that Eddie had and a more substantial offering at the MCG. And Danny knew all the St Kilda supporters. And just a quick doorstop every time you saw him. Look, we were better yesterday. Yeah. Or, no, that wasn't good. But we, look, we had a few guys out. And that was, you know, for myself, Ross Flegeltorp, other St, you know, other St Kilda supporters, we have a sort of a a pity club that we we tend to, a pity party we hold for each other whenever we see each other. And Danny was the um, more upbeat of St Kilda fans within that group. Yeah. But always, always you saw him. It wasn't how are you or, or how things are going. It was always we, as in St Kilda, and a reference to our current state of play. I um so it was Monday afternoon. I I just happened to text a um radio colleague about something uh, about oh, I think it was about three o'clock, and um he rang me and uh, he rang me back rather than text back, which is sort of you know a bit unusual. Not that I read anything into that, but as soon as he said um before he addressed what I texted him about, he said. Have you heard about Spud? And that was enough. I, you know, you know, when someone speaks like that, you know it's not good. And uh, yeah, so he told me then. Um, and then there's this sort of. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I can't remember being in this position too many times before. When um, you know you have that knowledge yourself, but it hasn't been. They haven't notified next of kin or. So there's this sort of twilight zone where it's um, the Herald Sun, their lead story on the website was man killed in crash in Ballarat. And, uh, you know, it's sort of really unusual and that's sort of like a a red flag, isn't it? And then um, the Age, uh, both the Age and the Herald Sun had um, AFL identity, you know, and, uh, and then finally, yeah, I think it was around six o'clock you know it was several hours but they they obviously I uh, told everyone and they they used the name and but but you were seeing the reactions of people on social media and unfortunately and um, look we could talk about this in media watch this is this is a I had Twitter on and um, I could see people starting to tweet you know and say a couple of people tweeted me is it true about and using the name, and, um, you know, if I could say something to people out there, and, uh, look, people don't do it in a malicious way, but you just, you really need to, you know, until someone's death has been confirmed, you really need to um, not do that, because it's so upsetting for people, um, you know, close to them who, who don't know yet, 
Uh, but it's terrible, isn't it? I mean, mm. you know, he's got daughters um, who are in various parts of the country that will, or, you know, various stages of their life and may be in lectures at university and, and simply otherwise occupied. And we know that young people are connected to their social media and, and to find out maybe via Twitter or Facebook. Or oh, well, I, you know, I've read the odd occasion with people I don't know about that happening. I mean, there'd be no no worse way. I mean, there's obviously not a great way to find out news like that. But, yeah, um, yeah people have just got to sort of pull their heads in occasionally. But but, but I, that would have been done without malice. Not, yeah, yeah, no. Not, but, not knowing the flow of the time and... Just hearing but something it, and being in shock. It, it was a mass. It was a massive, massive shock, and uh, I think the shock compounded. It's hard to know where not to blur the lines here with media watch talk, but it compounded for me. It, it scared me because um, you know I, I was thinking about the circumstances of the death and pondering the obvious question and the knowledge that. Uh, Spud had done so much in that mental health space um, and that was the thing I kept tossing over I thought you know geez <laughs> someone someone has been so open about their own battles and and as such a champion and an ambassador for the cause and um, uh, an aid to other people in similar situation and uh, yet you know that's that's not enough to save them you know the first news report that I heard of Danny's passing the official news report which came at 6.30 on the radio and there was something in that news report which um, was very concerning obviously the great concern was and shock was that Danny had passed away but they spoke about it more in police terms and, and then spoke about Danny Frawley and you know, it was a single car accident a vehicle left the road near Gordon, and I know that area quite well, by the way, because we uh, regularly spend time in Dalesford, and you go through Gordon, and um, they said Danny Frawley was 56, having had his 56th birthday the previous day, and I sort of, you know, I felt that that may be telling. Oh, you can't can't help but put two and two together yeah. look just we are going to talk but, but beyond that um, you know I'd be I'd, this is a very sad moment but there is also the memory of Danny Frawley well I was about to say let, let's we are going to talk about that stuff let's talk about the legacy the football legacy left by um, and your as a St Kilda supporter, your best place to talk about it from let's talk about Frawley the player because I, I've always felt that he was probably a bit undervalued as a as a champion of the game. Yeah, well, I mean, he started in 1984. These were terrible times for St Kilda. His first full season was 85, so he started in the 49 jumper, and then quickly went to the 24 jumper, and of course, ultimately settled with number two. But he was playing in 1985 from the start of the season. Now, that was the worst. That was the lowest of the low. St Kilda had two home games. 300-point They lost three games by 100 points, but they actually started that game against South Melbourne as favourites and were near level at half-time and lost by 110 points and then were similarly shredded by Carlton the week after when 
Greg McAdam kicked all of our goals, both of them, I should say. So this was a backline under siege uh, the week after Richmond, another 100-plus point loss. Very quickly, St Kilda supporters had a glimmer of hope for the future with what me and my mates would call the ears. We'd say, we've got a team with a fair, fair ears, but nothing in between because we had Lockett up one end and Frawley up the other end and absolutely not much going on otherwise. So, with respect to Joffre and Greg Burns. So, his career was a lot of football under siege. Now, no better... You get no better sense of what sort of footballer Daddy was and how good a backman he was Ask any St Kilda supporter who went to football religiously through the 80s and 90s, as I did. Ask them who their three or five best footballers of all time are, Owen. Mm. And do you know who won't be in that list? Um, Ablett. Correct. Mm. Now, Gary Ablett could not ever get on top of Danny Frawley. His biggest haul was seven goals. And I'm not sure they were all on Danny anyhow. There was a day that Geelong kicked 35 goals. Exel kicked eight. <laughs> they, they, they were kicking him from every, everywhere, but Gary only kicked five. In fact, Ablett was kept goalless by Spud on four different occasions. And he averaged a tick over three goals a game against St Kilda when Spud was playing. Now, that's pretty good. So, Rich, Richmond would have preferred him as a defender than a coach, I reckon. So the um, the record 240 games over 12 seasons, All-Australian in 1988. The year, uh, he won the B in FA. And I won think. the best and fairest in 1988. And, uh, yeah, look, I... I um, uh, and we should mention, he led us into the finals. Yep, in 91. Now, this was important. In the first final... St Kilda played Geelong. It was a great game. Gary Ablett had five possessions. Mm. St Kilda just lost. Yeah. Was well, Billy Brownless kicked uh, eight, nine? Co- was yeah, it yeah. eight or nine? Plugger kicked nine. Billy yeah. kicked eight. The year after, St Kilda, heavy underdogs against Collingwood. Mm. Had a famous win at Waverley, but unfortunately, Spud did his Achilles during the third quarter. And famously, at three-quarter time, Robert Harvey, who you know is a quiet individual, extolled, he, he spoke, very rarely did he do this, he, he took the reins and he urged his team to do it for Danny, our beloved captain who's not going to be here in the last quarter. And they went on and won that game. They lost the week after, in no small part because he wasn't playing, by the way. Mm. But they really just lifted in that last quarter, famously on the words of Harvey, to do it for Spud. I think when people uh, hear about him and look at highlights of him, they sort of think of a you know an, an old-fashioned, rough-and-tough full-back. But he, he was pretty mobile, too, for a guy of that size, I reckon. And, That's what um, he always said, how quick he was. And, and one of the... Uh, one of the montages of highlights I saw the other day actually featured him up forward kicking a goal. And I just had a look. He only kicked 14. Twice he, he kicked three in a game, though. And he looked quite good doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so look, a, a, a wonderful player at, at, as you say, a really difficult time to be a St Kilda defender. I wonder if Dermiel's 
what Dermy will have to say about him because, and I've spoken to Dermy about this. Uh, I saw Dermy put something on social media. Uh, Dermy left out a pair of boots on his doorstep in a gesture the other night. No, yeah, he's. I'm, so I'm sure he'd be very moved by his passing. Of course he would have been. But there was a famous game at the MCG when St Kilda were just coming of age and Spud was playing on Dermy and had him absolutely cold-cocked and just before half-time, he was beating him at every contest and just before half-time, Dermy laid him out. Yeah. No, I did the, um, I covered the tribunal case uh, that ensued. Um, Yeah, no, I think Dermy knows he had his number on that occasion. Um, The other thing I want to mention just quickly, because we do have a couple of other things we're going to talk about, but... uh, his Richmond coaching career, you know, is sort of um, talked about in terms of failure and, you know, the guy dumping chicken manure on a doorstep and someone spitting on him. Five seasons, uh, 113 games, 45 wins, 68 losses. But I reckon, I was thinking about it the other night, the 2001 season the Tigers had when they got to the preliminary final, and yes, they were fixed up by Brisbane in the preliminary who went on to win the flag. But um, the Tigers that year did manage a finals victory over Carlton uh, in a uh, very hotly contested semi-final that actually, funnily enough, was um, it was the day after or no, a few days after uh, 9-11, which obviously is uh, the anniversary, which has just come around again. But... Um, that effort in taking that Richmond group to the finals in that season, I think, is also underestimated because it wasn't, you know, it was an OK team, but it wasn't one of the great teams. They had their share of battlers, the Tigers, as they they'd they had, had their share of Pickerings. As no, that was a bit earlier, but as they'd had in '95 when they struggled to get there. But um, uh, yeah, that was a really good coaching effort. So. You know, I think perhaps his coaching legacy gets underestimated a bit too. And, and then there's, you know, all the other stuff, the promotional stuff. I mean, he was doing those clinics with Gary Wine for years and years and years. Um, you know, we've all we've all got our favourite stories. I, I did a piece with Lloyd Richards going up to interview him at the parents' bungaree farm in 1985. And uh, they wouldn't let us, literally wouldn't let us leave until we sat down and had lunch with them. And, of course, it was a big roast you know for lunch and it was um it it was a terrific experience and you know uh one of those people too that um always remembered your name which is a you know people that meet so many people and are in the public eye I think that that is a real skill it's certainly one I haven't mastered and uh he remembered who you were and, and what you did and um you know a real people person uh, we will talk more about the media ramifications of this in Media Watch, but just a couple of other things bubbling along besides the finals. Just, just on Danny. Yep. It's a famous football line, which is still played today. Because he's, I, I think, the nephew of Des Tudden. He is, yeah. And, of course, he's the uncle of Chip James Frawley. Yep. So we talk about a line that, Started in the early 60s. Chip off the old block. And through, you know, nephew to nephew, is still playing football today. Yep. And boy, a pretty impressive line. You know, Des Tudman, tough as nails, and you've got premiership player Chip and a, and a club legend and St Kilda, you know, Hall of Famer in Danny Frawley. It's, it's a pretty strong line. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, a couple of other things uh, we're going to bring up quickly. Uh, Joe Danaher, the rumours about Joe Danaher going to Sydney uh, suddenly have stepped up a couple of cogs in the last couple of days. I guess the reason is because Sydney do famously get their man when he's a key forward. You go through Plugger and Barry Hall and Buddy Franklin and any time they've sort of locked the crosshairs on a key forward, they seem to be able to make it happen. That's and, true. And Zach Merritt has, in the last couple of days, said that Joe is considering his future, which means that that meeting with Tom Harley was more than coffee, one would imagine. Yeah, I'm, I'm, look, I, I, haven't, I haven't heard anything. Uh, I, I've got to say, I, I still would be surprised. I think he's got a, a huge future at Essendon. You know, he could be a, a, a franchise-type player. I mean, that's how good his potential is. And people who might scoff at that, um, don't forget the last season in which he was fit which was 2017, he won the best and fairest and was tipped to win the Coleman medal as a result by several pundits afterwards. So the upside is enormous. Well, there's um, no question he could be a franchise player. That's why the Swans have them have Joe in their sights. But my point is he can be that for Essendon as well. And I think it's not just the non-Victorian clubs who need a you know marketable spearhead. I think Essendon is a club that probably lacks out-and-out out class, and uh, put it this way, I don't think they'll be, um, you know, I don't, I don't think they'll be giving up on him without a considerable fight. I'll say this, Swans have been very clever in identifying these spearheads probably at a point in their football careers. I mean, these are, these are storied footballers. We're talking Lockett and Franklin are two of the all-time greats, and Barry Hall, very influential. They've picked a point in their career maybe where there is a touch of vulnerability where the move to Sydney was in certain ways offered them a respite from some of the pressures that they were feeling in Melbourne. And for Joe Danaher, they might say, you know, after two years barely playing, starting your career immediately after, you know, in the aftermath of the Asada situation, that... A clean slate, a fresh start might be, you know, just what the body and the mind needs. Well, the other thing, uh, and I, I mean, this would be a factor. There is a very strong family connection there still, as in uh, the Mords and Danaher's are very strong. Uh, interwoven through marriage. Um, so, and I, I never get who married who right. But, but, but uh, Danaher's have married Mords, so the two families are very close. There's a very strong connection. And, of course, Danaher's have been very much a, a Swans family as well as a Bombers family. More Bombers yeah. through the trade with Neville Fields, but yeah. very much part of the Swans in other ways as well. Well, through Joe's father, Anthony, obviously, who, yeah. who was a terrific player for them before he went to Essendon, and Anthony and uh, Joe, J-O, uh, as in Joanne, uh, wonderful parents to Joe too. So, um, yeah, it won't be an easy decision for any of them, I, I would have thought, but um, clearly that sort of family connection would be a factor as well. Uh, a couple of other ones. Let's just move through these quickly. But apparently I'm hearing the Sean Burgoyne 
finishing off his career as a Gold Coast player thing is a very, very real possibility. Um, and they'd love that because they're, they're hot for Brandon Ellis as well. They need to land. Once they get Burgoyne, I think they might be able to convince a couple of others. It's sort of, it saddens me a bit, to be honest. And, and it, I, I mean, good good play, well-played Gold Coast if they can do that because I think that's the sort of thing they need to do. But it made me think back to, remember when Doug Hawkins finished off his career as a Fitzroy player and we all said, of course, ah, of course. you know, that wasn't, that. Oh, we don't want to remember Dougie like that. Well, it's not that much different really, is it? But then they'll say, is it that much difference different to Luke Hodge going to Brisbane? No, it's not. And clearly that is going to become more and more of a template. No, that's what I'm saying. It's good work from Gold Coast, but it's sort of, you know, I mean, Sean Burgoyne's one bloke. Oh, well, I guess he's already played for two clubs, hasn't he? Look, it's an old fish, but it's a still a big fish for a club like Gold Coast. You know, they need a culture change, and Sean Burgoyne will certainly attract young Indigenous footballers to the club, no question, because he's got a great position within the Indigenous football community and could convince others that Gold Coast is no longer on the nose. Well, speaking of which, uh, as they lose a very talented Indigenous player in Jack Martin, who has nominated Carlton as his preferred destination, which is a massive win for the Blues. I mean, he's a serious talent, Jack Martin. When right, and you'd have to think that away from the Gold Coast, certainly in the emerging side that Carlton is, he would be focused and be able to play the sort of football that would never see him in the in their seconds team like he was at the Gold Coast. I mean, that was just obviously something had gone off the rails there. And we know because he's looking to go elsewhere that his mind wasn't and his heart wasn't on Gold Coast. And a couple of other ones too. Um, speaking of Carlton, uh, talk that Sam Jacobs could finish his career back at the Blues. That's an odd one to be. Yeah, well, sort of. I mean, it's, makes you think of Paul Salmon at Essendon, Hawthorne Essendon. Um, would be similar, I guess. Yeah, except Essendon, Hawthorne Essendon was storied career at Essendon. Great time at Hawthorne. Finish off where you were a champion. Mm. Sam Jacobs is rejected, or you know, looked over at Carlton, made his name in Adelaide, come back to Carlton. A bit different to me. No, it's, it's something about uh, the ruck position, though. I think you know, being such a specialist position, I guess the perhaps there's more scope for something like that happening with a ruckman than a player of another position. Um, the other interesting one, uh, Adam Tomlinson, who his name seems to get thrown up virtually every trade period, but it appears like he could. Um, be leaving GWS as a restricted free agent going to Melbourne. Yeah, Melbourne are favoured to get his services. Again, quizzical. Melbourne looking for somebody who has played a number of positions but is probably nominally a key defender. That being said, Sam Frost is on the table apparently and Hawthorne and North Melbourne are both locked in a battle for his services, they say. All right, well, we haven't obviously haven't even gotten to the trade period, but uh, like I say, it goes for most of the year now in a de facto sense, so uh, watch this space and we'll, uh, we'll keep our eyes on what's going on for the next few weeks while the actual football is going on as well. Final one to finish off, Finey, uh, St Kilda Best and Ferris last night, and congratulations to Seb Ross, who won his second BNF. He polled 170 votes uh, winning from Rowan Marshall, who polled 152, 
and Jack Steele in third place, 151. Um, someone asked me the other night who I thought would win it, and I did think it would be him. I thought Marshall would go close. But Gee, that's a good tip because I thought that was a real surprise result. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, okay. No, well, maybe. I don't know. I just thought every time I saw St Kilda play, I thought he was among their best. Um I thought Marshall would have been a good result too, but I mean, it's easy to sell short the efforts of a, a stalwart in a generally unfavourable year, but um, he's pretty consistent, certainly with his ball winning. Yeah. So who did you think was going to win it? I thought you'd have it covered between Marshall and Steele. Yeah, okay. Yep. Um, but it depends how the votes are apportioned. You really need to understand each club's voting system because... If it rewards consistency, say being in the best six players each week, mm. then I would have thought Seb Ross would have been a great chance. I, I guess I'm thinking more of the 3-2-1, which obviously it's not with votes up in the 150s. But you need to understand the system, and sometimes it's quite complicated. But if it rewards good, consistent football, then Seb Ross, right up there with the other two, should be have considered favourite. No, that's a really good point, actually, because if, yeah, I mean, you might be the fifth best player each week, whereas the best player might be the best player in 12 games, but be, you know, have lesser games in the, the games he doesn't poll. So, um, and I think best and fairest awards probably should be more uh, cognizant of that as well, too. I mean, there's enough awards that sort of celebrate the superstar performances. I like one that celebrates consistency across the season as well. And I certainly like one that rewards players right around the ground, and BNFs tend to do that better With defenders. than Brownlows. Now, St Kilda didn't have a defender that deserved to win the BNF, but it was good to see a Ruckman go very close. Yeah, and and what and you spotted him a long time ago. He's, uh, he's going to be a ripper, and already is a ripper, as he's proven in his uh, finish in this award. All right, there's enough of news feed for this week. Let's talk about the fourth estate. On Footyology Media Watch. Okay, uh, let's talk about the fourth estate. And I did toss up whether we should talk about this subject, but I think we probably should. Um, it's Are You OK Day today on Thursday, the 12th of September. And very importantly, uh, if you or someone you know needs help in that space, um, you can contact Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636 or Lifeline on 131114. Um, I wanted to talk about the reporting of Danny Frawley's passing because um, it's a very, very tricky thing, this finey, but you you can't help but notice, and it's continuing as we speak in various reports, um, uh, the allusions that are being made to uh, how Spud passed. And um, uh, there's a, a giveaway with most stories of this nature, and that is the tag that I just read um, that appears on the bottom of stories uh, in print and online. And in this case, there's been a lot of oblique references to things such as, um, for example, both major newspapers have had a line in stories, various stories about, um, like, for instance, the police aren't going to record that fatality in their official 
road accidents um, toll. Um, there's been the um, stressing of the fact that you know he was the only passenger in the car. That um, uh, a straight stretch of road. Um, you know where I'm I'm going with this and. What I wanted to raise was the question, and I'm not coming from a, a preconceived notion here because I'm actually throwing this out there. We talk about how we've got to talk about this stuff openly, um, and we, we're sort of still not. We are to a point, but there's a real obvious sort of taboo about talking about people taking their own lives. It's interesting because there has long, it's long been felt in the media that when a public figure takes their own life or, I mean, another term is death by choice, that it's not mentioned in the media in a, in a obvious forthright manner for fear of others seeking the same solution. But in recent years, that that has been countered by a suggestion that there needs to be more upfront discussion about suicide and that when a public figure does take their own life, there is an opportunity maybe to start the discussion with people that you have concerns about or maybe it affords somebody an opening to talk about their own situation. So, look, it it needs to be handled on a case-by-case basis, but I think we have come to a point, certainly with the extensive coverage of the passing of Danny Frawley, where it is quite clear from the police reports, quite clear from articles that have been written over, say, the last 48 hours as compared to the first 24 hours, that this was a tragic case of somebody taking their own life. Now, to not actually choose not to say that in media coverage is now, I believe, a moot point, honestly. It it, it is now quite clearly... That is the case. It, it's difficult for media organisations, isn't it? Because they, you know, they want to do the right thing, and they're being guided by uh, a series of guidelines that mental health authorities put out there. But they're they're pretty nebulous, aren't they? As as we can see with this, and I think what you're saying is quite right. Now, I'm I'm just looking at a story in front of me on my phone from news.com.au. And uh, the headline is, footy legend Danny Frawley went missing in final days before tragic death. Um, you know, he missed an appointment he was scheduled to have with a psychiatrist. He There was a family birthday, because it was his birthday on Sunday, that he didn't attend. Um, now, I guess my question is, and a lot of people would be asking this, th- those things, it's a clear two plus two equals four, so... Why then does not actually explicitly saying someone took their own life, yeah, what is the point of not doing that if you're basically strongly implying it anyway? That's exactly right. It becomes a moot point. This, These articles, though not saying taking your own life, though not using the word suicide, though not using the term 
death by one's own choice, are saying exactly that. And on Are You OK Day, should we really still be skirting around the crux of the matter in coverage of a public figure's passing when Are You OK Day tells us to open the discussion, to start the discussion, the very serious discussion about mental health and about the dark places that people may find themselves in when faced with mental health issues. Now, this is clearly something that Danny was passionate about Mm. and we don't for a minute suggest that his family or friends uh, did anything but address that topic with him and it was obviously something that he was upfront about. So it also goes to show that we put our best efforts in but it still is a... It, it's a it's a cruel thing is mental health and mental health issues because they can spiral quickly and thoughts can quickly take somebody to a place where a dark decision is made. So there's no blame apportioned here as to lack of openness or transparency by family or friends for any person. Simply an understanding now through medical health experts that burying the topic, hiding from what is obviously in some people mental health problems is not the way to go and to be open and willing to discuss it is the right route. No, I I agree. Uh, Look, I, I think there's been, you know, having spent my whole adult life in newspapers, you know, the convention um, was very much not reporting and it was very well informed, you know, um, uh, the fear of copycat behaviour. I think with this, it's as much also, and, you know, it's a difficult thing to broach, but the stigma attached to suicide. And, and this is something, you know, I've had some very uh, passionate debates with people really close to me about this you know some people some people's reaction to suicide is very harsh and it's anger at the person um, who takes their own lives because of the shocking impact on on those they leave behind and in Danny's case obviously you know three wonderful daughters and um, his his wife Anita you know lovely lovely people and I absolutely, I absolutely get that. But um, but that anger is born from a point in time. We understand now, and and it's it's actually very accurate. Is the stages of handling loss through from um, denial, anger, bargaining, on to acceptance and and moving on. And so there will be a point in time where there, those close to people who take their own lives will be angry. But that is generally an understood stage of handling loss, the, the, the grief, the stages you go through. And I think those people that are exhibiting anger in time learn to accept and, and to move on and cherish the memory without that anger. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Look, I, I think this is a point that I make when I have this debate with people and it's that 
you know, people people that choose to take their own lives aren't aren't in a rational state of mind. And you know, people saying, "Well, how could they do that? How could they do that to their families and whatever?" You you're adopting the mindset of someone who is thinking rationally. That these are decisions taken by people that aren't thinking rationally. And I think you have to be personally. I, I think that you know, however much pain is caused for those left behind, you have to appreciate or try to sort of empathise with the shocking state of mind that those people must be in at that moment. And this is talking about anyone. It's not just talking about about Spud. And you will find that in many cases a common theme is that they, the burden that they feel themselves through the pain of their mental health issues, they believe that others are also burdened by it and by taking their own life that they are releasing others of that burden as well which is always so far from the truth you know loved ones would do anything to work through these problems with people but in in a, in a state of deep depression or confusion that comes with mental health problems is a belief that people would be better off without you which is unfortunately a manifestation of a mental health a mental health problem and and it's and it's also never the case and this is why you know and it's easy to sort of think those things are a cliche but if you you know if you are feeling very ordinary you know get on the phone you know get on social media talk to anyone um, and I think you'll find audiences that are, are far more receptive. Look, I'll be quite honest here. I, I um, This shook the absolute bejesus out of me, and not just because I know Spartan, I've worked with him and I, I liked him, but it, it, the circumstances just made me think, you know, how many of us in a, in a moment of despair, in a mad moment, would be capable of, of just saying, oh, to hell with it all, you know, and um, uh, you know, I've 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 had I've had those moments. I mean, I, I've I've talked about this before. I, you know, I've I've had mental health issues. You know, I've had several bouts of depression in my adult life, and um, several long periods of treatment. You know, counselling and and medication. And um, the one point I always try to make with this is that. You know, when someone talks, and I think this is a really good example of it, when someone talks about their mental health struggles in the past tense, and when someone particularly ends up being a champion of those causes, as Spud was, you sort of think, oh, well, great, isn't it great? They're, they've got a handle on it, and they're coping with it, and, and the fact that they can talk about this, they must be going well. And yeah, at moments they are, but... If if you have a pre a genetic predisposition to depression and mental health issues, it doesn't magically go away. And and all the counselling in the world and all the all the medication, which can be really really helpful, trust me, um, doesn't sort of completely solve the issue. And you know, I I am you know lots of people that that have these issues. You know, you have you have big ups and you have big downs and. It's it's a lifelong battle for people, and I think that this has sort of re-emphasised that to me. We have to understand that, regardless of your 
state of well-being in terms of your own mental health and we talk about happiness you know and how happy you are understand this that people will always on a superficial level try to convey a sense of well-being and happiness to others because it's a far more comfortable way to socially interact and to be accommodate you know to to make yourself easy to accommodate for others so generally you know how are you going mate yeah good how are things yeah yeah going good scratch the surface for everybody and it may be quite different it really it really may be people will always put on their best face when they walk out the door it's just human nature as i say it makes for easier interaction or we believe it does it's less complex so for people out there that feel that that the rest of the world's doing fine and they're not understand that that is simply not the case and it it it's a way of maybe accepting or understanding that we all everybody from almost entry into adulthood once we have responsibilities it comes with a burden for everybody Okay, so here's a question on Are You Okay Day. You know, like we're, we're getting better at talking about it. Uh, are we getting better at listening? If, yeah, well, that's a big question, isn't it? Well, if okay, so on Are You Okay Day, if someone rings you or contacts you and they and and they say I'm not I'm not okay, what what do you do? It's really interesting. Do you immediately pass the baton of responsibility over to a professional or a, a, at least a, a professional organisation? Well, yes, if you get a sense of urgency and immediacy with that response. But for many people, what is required is a mate or a family member who understands that it's not plain sailing all the time and not to just accept G'day, how's it going? Yeah, good. You know, to to be an a, a an individual open to hearing the longer answer, and just let people know that that I I I'm I don't need the two word answer. Yeah, fine, or I'm you know it's all, all good. That there is time to sit down. Maybe over a coffee, maybe go for a walk, maybe on the drive to the footy, maybe in between shots at golf, to hear the real story. Mm. And you know, At least be that for somebody. Because, because I guarantee you, your best mate, whoever that is out there, and it might be your partner, might be, your, might be one of your kids, might be your schoolmate, everybody has a burden as well as plenty of joys and pleasures, but there are burdens. And, and, and the old expression, you know, problem shared is a problem halved, is it? Or something along those lines. It really is true. It, re- it really, because then you hear from other people that they have similar situations and you don't feel isolated and you don't feel as though you are singled out by some external force for misery when everybody's happy. So, yeah, and I, I think that's the bottom line, that if, if someone does sort of open up to you about feeling like crap, you know, just 
be be a be a sponge, you know, just be prepared to listen because, you know, I can tell and you. And to share. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can tell you talking about, just talking about stuff can often make it feel better. And you're right. There's a very sort of, um, you know, I, I've been counselled by various people who mean well against, because I'm a, I'm a wear your heart on your sleeve person. And if someone says to me, oh, how are you going? I don't always say, yeah, great. You know, sometimes I will say, well, you know, shit house actually and and you do see like some people uh want to actually hear what's wrong and other people you know you know there's a time and a place sort of thing so maybe when we talk about do we have to get better at listening that's actually what it is it's just being open to if someone says no I'm I feel shit house taking the time at least to ask them why they feel shit house and I am not in any way Saying that the mental mental health professionals do not play an important role, th- th- that is understood. Now I went and studied psychology for four years because I had young children and I wanted to be, I wanted to take my reading on raising children to the next level because I felt it was important and I think I've been well served in as much that. One thing you do understand is this, that there are mental health professionals, but our mental health is best um, served and best, best monitored and best attended by those close to us. Mm. As good as a mental health professional is, your best mental health professional will be those people in your closest circle who know you, care about you, and have time and are willing, and they will be willing, and everybody is willing to ease the burden, ease the load. In, in a yeah, yes, and that's mental health in a holistic sense rather than Correct. a an isolated and that is, uh, that, medical sense. And that is taught over and over in psychology, whether it's the raising of children through developmental psychology, or on through adulthood and through various stages of of mental health issues and illnesses, it is always going to be your close circle of friends and family that are your best mental health, not professionals, but men, men, your, they're your first respondents. Yeah. No, no, I could, couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, look, if you want to reduce it even further, it, it's essentially about, it's about being compassionate and it's about being empathic and it's about making the headspace to think more about others and we're all guilty of not doing that uh i'm more guilty than a lot of people and i beat myself up about it frequently and i guess times like this perhaps are a very poignant reminder that um you know if if people come to you with a with a problem um try try to try to be an an assistant to that problem you know what you know how we've advanced, let's just say this. There's a long way to go because we are dealing with the mind, the brain, the the soul, which is uncharted territory and hard to map and hard to understand. But know this, that the old responses of suck it up, princess, or drink a cup of concrete and you know harden the F up, they're not responses. They're, they're, that's not caring. That's not listening. And that's not helping. Yeah. 
and, and know that. Yeah, and that um, you know you you can make a difference to people just by just by being there for them. Yeah, that's a, a sounding board. That's enough on on this topic, I think. But look, I, I will say this again because uh, it is are you okay day. Um, if you know, look, if this triggers issues for you, or if you are feeling like crap, uh, you or or someone you know is, uh, and they need help, you can contact Beyond Blue. On one three hundred two two four six three six or Lifeline, who do some great work. On one three double one one four. Do you want to hear something amazing? Yep. I told you um, off air that I go to South Australia regularly with a great friend of mine, Angela Modra, and with my family stay on her farm as a bit of a break. And that an incident had happened there a few years ago with a farmhand taking their own life. And whilst we were having this discussion, I received an SMS from her um, saying that she had read about the passing of Danny Frawley and she was SMSing me to ask me if I'm okay. That's nice. And that's... And that's, I'll, I'll call her straight after the program. And that is terrific to hear and I think we all need to, uh, yeah, just stay in touch with people you know who might be affected by things like this. And by the way, that shows this is somebody in another state that you don't have to be... It doesn't have to be somebody that you see every day. It can be somebody close to you but far away. All right. I think it's time we talked about two big semi-finals coming up this weekend. On Footyology, previews with Punch. Okay, two massive semi-finals. Geelong taking on West Coast Friday, MCG 750. Let's start right there. This is a corker of a game finding. It's very, very appetising for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, you've got the Geelong West Coast thing, and uh, I've written a column about this today for Inkle, which will be up on Footyology, but of course, uh, older Geelong fans will know that West Coast proved the nemesis for the Cats in those Malcolm Blight days. They beat them in two grand finals in 92 and 94. They beat them in a preliminary final in 1991, a year when the Cats had a good enough side to actually win the flag, uh, and once again, they have the potential role of spoiler. I don't think there's been many semi-finals where you've had a better qualified elimination final winner than are the Eagles. They, of course, are the reigning premier, and they've done a lot more than coughed and spluttered their way through the season. Yes, they've had their ups and downs, but uh, aside from that, what was admittedly a very costly round 23 stumble... Um, against Hawthorne, I think it's fair to say that they were really um, starting to go through the gears and hit their hit their stride towards the back end of the season. Geelong, well, this I don't want to sound too dramatic about it, but this is a potentially era-defining game, I reckon, for the Cats. They uh, have been in seven final series since they won their last premiership without delivering the goods. They haven't even made it to a grand final. And their finals record since the 2011 flag is 3-10. So another straight sets exit, a finals record of 3-11, no flags despite seven finals campaigns. That would be a fairly tarnished legacy, I think. And you'd have to look back on this uh, era and say that they have consistently failed when it mattered most. You know, thinking about Geelong, they are a triple premiership team that have kept the flame flickering 
right into another era, haven't they? Yep. They, I must say, have maintained their position because of fortune less usual. If you consider that the way teams are formed is through the draft or through trading, then Geelong have been incredibly well served by the father-son and were gifted by dint of geography the best gift of a come-home, you know, of a homesick footballer since maybe equal to Chris Judd or even better in Paddy Dangerfield. The question is, the double-edged sword means that they have not been able to enjoy some top-end draft picks, and it balances itself out a bit. And the question is, is this team a premiership side? Now, this is an incredibly... It's a powerful game, isn't it? Because not only does it say so much about the reigning premiers and the team that finished on top, but waiting for them is the ferocious Richmond. And, you know, I feel that in part, there's not a player who takes the field on Friday night that would admit this, but I really believe that West Coast feel that they could beat Richmond. Mm, I, I do too. And I think, and I don't I, think, I think Geelong, and I don't think Geelong, in their heart of hearts, think that they, even if they win this, are a chance to win the flag. They would have to beat Richmond and most likely perform far better against Collingwood. So on one hand, you've got a team that is resolute in making good on that bad game against Hawthorne and setting the ship right, and still believes, and quite rightly believes that they can defend the premiership from last year. And another team that is saying all the right things, but in their heart of hearts, they can't win the flag. And I think that's a really telling fact. I've seen finals play out like that before, mm. where the truth, the, the, the absolute truth of the game is that only one of these teams can advance meaningfully through the finals, and that'll be the team that wins. I, I know. I think that's a really good point. Just an, another point, too, and I know you've ridden this one pretty hard and rightly the uh, advantage that Geelong gets through GMHBA and uh, here's the extent of that so since the 2011 Premiership um, the Cats have played 63 games at Cadinia Park they've won 55 of them the record is 55-8 at the same time here's their record on the MCG 126 lost 24 here's their record on the road 122 Lost 22, drawn one. So at the MCG and on the road, they're little over 50% or exactly 50%. At Cadinia Park, where they play a considerable amount of games each year, it's what's 53 out, 55 out of 63 as a percentage, 90-something. It is a massive advantage, and you know, if they lose this, that argument that it inflates their position each year will certainly gather some momentum. I mean, just doing it on a simple mathematical extrapolation, they missed the top four this year without Cadinia Park. Yeah. You know, the other interesting one there too is Chris Scott. I, I did this number crunching last night. There's been 41 coaches in AFL history who have coached more than 200 games. Uh, Scott's now on 213. Of all those 41, he has by far the best winning percentage, 695 the next highest winning percentage is 
of those 200 game plus coaches is John Longmire with 64.2 and he's coached about 218 I think and then third best is Alistair Clarkson who has coached 371 games and he's on 61.8 but you know Scott's winning percentage and this is the contradiction isn't it you've got a a club that has that consistent performance in win pure win loss terms a coach with that sort of winning percentage and yet their finals record uh, is in danger of going to three eleven and seven failed finals campaigns since their last flag. And this is why I say it's an era-defining game for them. One, they're going to have to take on two, finally, without Mitch Duncan, who's a significant loss. One thing about winning percentages, of those 41, I'd like to know how many of those took over a premiership-type team. Mm. You see, most coaches come in when a team has been unsuccessful, mm. they replace a coach who has come to the end of their time. Circumstances were different for, obviously, Chris Scott. In fact, John Longmire probably was part of a succession plan, not quite as dramatic as this one. Now, a reasonable point. Mitch Duncan is a huge loss for him, isn't he? Huge. And Gary Rowan and he is more unlikely than likely to play. I think he could be a big loss. So we know he's not a great finals performer. But where they have fallen down in the second half of the season is that forward half pressure. And uh, it was no stat was more telling against Collingwood last week than the tackles inside 50 count, which was 8-16. If Geelong are going to win this game... They simply have to lock the ball in their Ford 50 far better than they did against the Pies. Look, we sit here on Thursday morning expecting Reece Stanley to be selected. West Coast's tall forward line demands that Blitzavs goes back into the back line. Yeah. Now, if they make one change, Stanley for Duncan, that's bad news for them. You know, that, that restricts their mobility and their goal power, their goal-kicking power. Duncan regularly hits the scoreboard. Yeah, there's a bit of a, a domino effect there, isn't it? I mean, this is the, in structural terms, this is the side they'd least want to be playing at the moment because you got Nick Nat having come back and acquitted himself very, very well. Um, Shannon Hearn, there were doubts on him. He, he's okay. Uh, Oscar Allen is available so and, and deserves a spot in that 22. Um, so do West Coast load up on the height front? You know, you've got uh, Waterman in there as well, don't forget, as well as Kennedy and Darling. Well, surely, surely Allen could only replace Hickey. Yeah, I reckon, no, I reckon they'd be, I reckon they're going to go with uh, Nick Nat and Hickey again. Maybe Allen misses out. Maybe Allen comes in for Waterman. That would be cruel luck for Waterman, who I thought played was a pretty good. good game. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So the Cats in selection terms haven't got a lot of places to go, have they? I mean, uh, Jordan Clark has uh, been ruled out again, and he's a bigger loss than people think. And the other one is, is Cam Guthrie, too. I mean, uh, he, you know, people don't look at him as being pivotal to their side, but just that on-ball uh, depth. And he, can, and he can go to, a, especially his size, to a shoey, for example. Yeah. And provide, he's an interesting play when he's run with, because often when he runs with is when he gets m- most of the football. Mm. But yeah, they don't have a lot of options. Obviously, you know, they, they'd love more run, but they uh, don't have access to Cockatoo. They've, 
Narkel was disappointing. They'd want more yeah. out of him. No, definitely. Uh, the other factor here too is the venue. These two sides haven't played each other on the G since the 2011 preliminary final. West Coast record on the ground is really good the last couple of seasons. Last outing, lost a, a cracking game against Richmond by a kick, uh, which is one reason they sort of fancy themselves against the Tigers. And uh, the Cats record this year has been good. It's uh, now 4-2 after the elimination final loss. Uh, tip. Okay, I'm tipping West Coast. I, I think most people would come from a position in recent weeks of saying West Coast should win this game. I'm going to ask you, not just for your tip, because I think you'd probably tip West Coast, but what needs to go right for Geelong to make this, to put them back in the contest Um, that didn't go right last game against Collingwood? Forward pressure. They had more inside 50 entries against Collingwood. They won the contested ball. They couldn't keep the ball inside their 50. So uh, Rowan preferably plays. Dalhouse has got to have a really good game. Atkins has got to have a really good game. Myers has got to have a really good game. Radiglia needs to pull his finger out and offer Hawkins a bit of support. Forward potency. That's what will give them a chance. And it seems now after three games without a goal that desperately Tom Hawkins needs to hit the scoreboard early. Yep. The longer it goes, the more self-doubt will creep in. Yep, big game for him as well. So you're going for West Coast? I am. I am going for West Coast as well. All right, let's move on to Brisbane and GWS, and it takes place at the Gabba on Saturday evening, 7.25pm. And as you pointed out the other day, Finey, who would have thought, just 10 years ago, we'd be sitting here ruminating over a big semi-final between Brisbane and the Greater Western Sydney Giants. Me, but I would have thought we are talking basketball. Yes. <laughs> okay. So what's going to happen, do you think? This is... Again, there is a tendency to reject the team that loses the first week of the finals and become enamoured with the team that wins in the first week of the finals. Mm. Well, just on that too, actually... I've done a lot of number crunching this week. Well done. Well, for between 2008 and 2013, so over a six-season period, 12 out of 12 qualifying final losers rebounded to win their semi-finals. However, from 2014 onwards, um, the ledger has been squared, uh, literally. Um, both elimination final winners won the semis in 2014, and three or four years since, at least one of them has uh, got up and beaten the qualifying final loser. So recent history tends to suggest that one of Geelong and Brisbane will lose. Yeah, and... Of going Geelong to yeah. be that man. Yeah, no, I'm in, in terms of ability to bounce back from those losses, I'm far more confident about Brisbane doing so. And I'm tipping Brisbane because GWS, I don't believe throughout the year, have earned the right to have their slate swept clean by one good win in the finals. And it was a good victory, don't get me wrong. Footscray or the Western Bulldogs had thrashed them earlier and previously, and they went and did a lot of homework and had a real plan, obviously, to attack not only Bontempelli, but be far more physical. Now, whilst they showed a great 
ability to stick to the script. That has not been GWS throughout the year. Mm. Brisbane huffed and puffed and could not blow the Richmond house down, but they huffed and puffed with some real intent and ability in that first quarter, and maybe had they kicked straighter, it would have been a harder task for Richmond to quickly get back into the game. I think Brisbane are capable of that football again. This time, though, if they huff and puff, I think they will blow the GWS house down because it's only in the last month the GWS fell apart twice without kicking goals in the second half in consecutive weeks. Yeah, I think there's considerable upside for the Lions. I mean, they peppered the goal. So the inside 50s in that first quarter against the Tigers were something like 23-6. You know, really poor kicking. So obviously got to clean up their conversion. In terms of personnel, now there is a big out for them too, and it's Mitch Robinson. Yes, it is big because he's you know, the human cannonball that puts doubt into the opposition. But it's one man out and they still have most of their favourite 22. I'll say this, that Richmond are such a brilliant team at getting the lead and then keeping the football. And it really frustrated Brisbane that they couldn't get their hands on the ball. GWS is not that team. Brisbane will get plenty of looks throughout the evening. And I think at the Gabba, they've shown this year, you give them a, you give them a look at the football... Loose ball, they are very, very competitive. Just have a look at Zorko, even in that final against Richmond, how he, how a rounded football he's become with gaining the loose ball and you know disposing of it when besieged by the opposition. There was that great play on the outer wing when he was tackled and he ran with the player and the ball and kicked it. I just think that they get enough looks against GWS the true Brisbane will out and will win. I think this is going to be a very physical game. I think GWS will feel rightly that their ultra-physical approach against the Western Bulldogs really paid off and, and they need to repeat it. And I think they'll look at the way Richmond, in the end, out-muscled Brisbane and think that there's an opening there for them. Question without notice, and we probably we should have talked about this in the news, to be honest, but uh, how lucky is Toby Green to be out there playing? I don't think they could have suspended him. They could have, they could have suspended him, but not for eye gouging, uh, for, Un, con, for just conduct for, unbecoming. Yeah, for unduly and unnecessary, uh, you know, contact, contact to the face. Yeah, but it seemed to be all about the eye gouging, wasn't it? Mm. If if we weren't preoccupied with that and just said, all right, you rough a player up, you you know, you stick his head in the mud and then you let go. But this was sort of a repeated, almost wild animal type attack, wasn't it? I, I reckon there's a feeling in the footy public that he absolutely dodged a bullet there, and I I couldn't agree more. I reckon he's incredibly lucky to be playing. Given I, some of the things that we see people suspended for games for, that is, you know, it was a pretty ordinary act. But all the years been leading up to it, where good players have been spared the rod mm. for this, you know, it is not... People have to understand, and then the AFL has to understand that giving out fines is not an acceptable alternative to suspending a player. And this year, there seems to have been this new philosophy taken right over the last two years. Well, he's been found guilty and he's been fined. He's punished. No, he's not punished. That's not a punishment in a football sense. Mm. No, I agree. Couldn't agree more. But the move has been totally toward... I mean, it's it's in keeping with the thing about saving time and resources and whatever. But I'm with you. The football consequences 
aren't nearly enough. And I think this is one case. Uh, and it, it just, I don't know, so I, I felt like the whole thing got swept under the carpet, the ramifications of it. And I guess we've been preoccupied with sad and tragic events. But um, he is so lucky. And it's such a huge inclusion for them. I mean, he would could, have been a big miss, wouldn't it? Oh, well, put it this way if he wasn't playing, there's no way I'd even consider tipping the Giants in this game. I mean, he, he was terrific for them against the Western Bulldogs. Uh, just in terms of personnel, obviously, Brett Deledio, sadly, um, we've seen the last of him. Stephen Cornelio, they reckon, is a chance if they win for the preliminary final, but not for this week. Um, I think the Gabba is a, a big factor in this too. I mean, the the crowd noise early on, particularly when they were playing Richmond, that... Uh, that is worth a bit to them, and it's uh, we've seen their record there in finals. That's the first finals defeat they've had there, which makes the, the Gabba finals record now 12-1. I think it's 12-1. Um, so that's a considerable advantage to them as well. Look, I, I think overall um, they did in the end get brushed aside by Richmond, but it, it, they were not, not for the first time. It was the second time in a couple of games against Richmond where they lost but there was still plenty of upside. I think they need to just show a little bit more even-headedness, certainly near goal, you know, the likes of Cam Rayner. Um, just convert. But if particularly if they convert those early opportunities, I'll be very confident that they're on their way to a win. Well, the one thing that concerns me a little bit is our all-Australian full-back. Harris mm, Andrews. Yeah. Might have been, you know, up, just showed that... It, he wasn't able to show all of his marking skills and dashing spoiling skills when put up against a really good key forward in Tom Lynch. And he started second-guessing himself a couple of times as well. And I think almost would say he was a bit overawed. Mm. He needs to find his best self because Jeremy Cameron can win games of football. Well, there's some history there too, isn't there? Yeah, Jeremy that's right. Cameron and, and Harris of Andrews. Course there, of course there is. There's... Um, Harris Andrews had his electricity turned off by the power company that was Jeremy Cameron. And he got five for that from memory, and too. And he should have, too. Yeah, it yeah, was, no, it was... It was... If Reckless used to be a, a, a ranking rather than deliberate, then I, I that was one where I said being Reckless was worse than being deliberate. Mm. I'm just going to fly through the air with an elbow and see what happens. Yeah, so it'd be very interesting duel to keep your eye on there. Okay, uh, give us a tip. Well, Brisbane for mine... I think that they will have an opportunity that they didn't get against Richmond, and that is they'll get more of the ball. I'm going for Brisbane as well, so we concur on both. Uh, should those tips eventuate, of course, that would leave us... Oh, don't be silly. No need to go back into tallies. No, I wasn't going We're to. doing finals tallies, are we? No. I wasn't going to. I was just going to say what the preliminary finals will be. Oh, I thought you were going to tell us that you you beat me by four. No, I I, I didn't even know it was four finding. Clearly, you're far more obsessed with it than I am. Yeah, just completely obsessed. If our our tips get up, uh, we will have two preliminary finals, one between Collingwood and Brisbane and the other between Richmond and West Coast. And what cracking games they would be. Oh, very high. But surely the tally in our tipping is more important. Oh, okay, whatever you say. But I Look, can't catch you if you keep copying me. No, I know I won. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's enough for me. I don't need a margin. Um, all right, uh, there you have it. Let's uh, finish this baby off. On Footyology, the final word. 
Okay, competition time, and uh, really enjoyed this competition, finding it was a good uh, task set by you, and it was asking people to write to us and tell us about um, bad finals memories uh, and uh, talking about, you know, not just your team losing, but your experience of that final um, and uh, we asked for a bit of alliteration with that, and we certainly got it. We got some cracking entries, so thank you very much to everyone who took the time to write us an email and tell us their tales of finals woe, and um, we've got some prizes to give away. They are an Andrews Hamburgers T-shirt, an Andrews Hamburgers cap, and a 100% organic cotton argan Gym towel and uh, just quickly too, finally, I've been speaking to our uh, warehouse, and we definitely have a bumper prize for our grand final quiz, which uh, will be an Argon uh, bed set. Uh, uh, we're talking doona, we're talking bed sheets, pillow slips, everything, and uh, the value is substantial. So make sure you enter our grand final quiz. Uh, details to be announced shortly. Now, just on prize delivery, Marcus, there, I didn't have your address correct. You, this morning, received something in your letterbox because on the way to this podcast, I went to your place. I almost, I won't say the street, I actually put it in 40A. Then I thought, no, that's not right. Double back. So if you haven't, if you're listening to the podcast before you check your letterbox, First of all, you need a bigger letterbox, but it's all in there. <laughs> did you put Did you put a name on it so it won't get pinched by the neighbours? No, it's in the letterbox. Okay. It's in a bag. All right. Well, hopefully Marcus hears this a yeah. bit of him later. Yeah, correct. Uh, all right. So okay. these were great. These were great entries. True pain in fi- in the personalising of finals pain was brilliant, wasn't it? Yep. So we've got a couple of runners up. Now, one of these runners up, you know, Obviously, uh, I need to mention that most of these were either St Kilda or Richmond. Mm. That's where the pain has fallen, which is interesting, isn't it? Because Richmond have had a salve to their pain, and St Kilda supporters still wait. So, this one for a St Kilda supporter. And it comes... Who is it? ...from Peter. Now, Has he got a surname? Well, I don't really know. Yes, Walker. Peter Walker, former Geelong great. Yeah, that's true. No, no. Peter, Peter has corresponded with us several times. Now, he has personally witnessed the 1971, 97, 2009 and 2010 grand finals. That's tough enough. And whilst they were tragic outcomes, he marks 2000, uh, 1997 as being the hardest to handle. The 1997 grand final he brings back in living painful colour. After a slow start to the season, we lost four of the first five games, the Saints got things together surprisingly well and finished as a surprising minor minor premier. However, not apparent at the time was the importance of the loss of players like Joel Smith, Lazar Vidovic and Peter Everett, not to mention serious personal issues befalling Stuart Lowe and Nicky Winmar. Despite these obstacles, after a shaky start, the grand final was one that saw the Saints fight back courtesy of Mm, Barry Hall, to be in front by 10 points at half-time. Surely things were now back on track for the Saints and they'd come marching in over a surprisingly good Adelaide. However, with the aid of Andrew McLeod, Darren Jarman, Sean Rellin, Shane Ellen, the Crows drew away in the second half. The realisation that 
became reality in the last quarter that the favourites were going to lose was a horrible feeling and one which I and fellow Saints supporters never saw coming. I saw it coming. Did you? Yeah, I've got a, I've got impending doom written over everything St Kilda does, really. Geez, they were uh, they were on a roll there, weren't they? Hall kicked a, a three goals. Yeah, and about... he hit the post just be, he hit the post just before half time. Would have been very handy. I remember the way that game ended too. It was quite gloomy, and the rain just started falling, and it was and it was just the over and over singing of that song. I've never heard a song played so it just. It took me half an hour to get out of the ground, but the song just kept going and going. Oh, God, I hated it. Okay, next. Okay. So, so thanks, Peter. Great entry. Yeah, it was a great great entry indeed. And this is another Richmond one. Oh, look, this, I'll, I'll do this one very, very quickly because it was a beauty from Dave Anderson. And he was 1982, and he was sitting in the front row of the cheer squad as a cheer squad member, with his flogger nestled between me and the fence. And he, they'd won the second semi-final. He was very excited, but he felt that there was a bad omen when he got to the grand final. And that was that the cheer squad was sitting in the Ponsford end of the ground, unfamiliar compared to their spiritual uh, home at the Punt Road end. I'm, I'm big on things like that. Yep. yep. It was drizzling and he was nervous. Carlton got on the board early, but they were right back in the game. And they were feeling, he was feeling good. He doesn't mention a certain South Australian female that entered the ground. That doesn't come into his record. Be about the only count, account of that grand Correct. final that didn't. But unfortunately, Carlton get up and win the flag. He can still hear the Navy Blues theme rolling across the ground. He trudges out of the ground and sees two kids leaning over the parapet on one of the stands, going nuts with excitement. One of them spits a gobful of saliva on him. <laughs> it's getting worse. Halfway to Jollymon, he realises he left his beloved Richmond flag back at the ground. Oh, no. He doesn't go back to get it. Oh. It doesn't seem important. You broke my teenage heart that day, Richmond. I think, uh, did Dave mention too the... Um uh, long story, but yeah, I, I was not haunted, but I've always remembered something out of the replay of that game, which was uh, after Kevin Bartlett kicked a goal early in the last quarter that got the Tigers back to within a kick. Yes. The um, camera panning to the top deck of the Northern Stand, where there was a, a young boy in uh, clad in Richmond garb looking so hopeful and fearful yeah, at the same is, time. Yeah, that's, that's mentioned. Yeah, yeah, no, he did. I knew he mentioned it. Yes. And uh, I did, uh, he asked, I think, Dave asked whether we did track him down, and we did. Uh, I've just forgotten his name temporarily, but he did actually contact us to say he appreciated the mention. And, uh, yes, he did manage to move on with his life, Dave, and uh, very much enjoyed the 2017 Grand Final, which he attended with his kids. So always good to hear stories like that. So thanks for that entry, Dave. That is a rip-up. But our winner, Fonnie. And there was another Richmond supporter, just very quickly, who mentioned not only losing last year's preliminary final, mm. where he refers to Mason Cox with a middle name that I'm sure his parents didn't give him, but... Obviously, a staunch Labor man, and this was around the time of the loss of the election. Uh, or what, ma- the preliminary final? No, it wasn't actually. No, it wasn't. But, but that was that marked was another great loss for him. But do you know how he commiserated with mates the night that Richmond lost the prelim? No. 
him and his mates met at the tote yep. and saw a band called Bats Piss. Oh, Bats Piss. Yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah? Yeah, no, they're one of the fixtures on the local gig circuit. Incidentally, just quickly, while we're talking, um, I know a lot of people listening to this are also into music. Fantastic band from Boston called Moving Targets who were around in the 1980s and early 90s. This has been one of the highlights of my uh, year. Uh, I've discovered that they have reformed and put out a new album, which has come out in the last few days. It's called Wires. If you like Husker Do, that sort of stuff, get on this, people. It is an absolute beauty of an album. The front man is a guy called Kenny Chambers, a wonderful singer, songwriter, great guitarist. You won't be disappointed. Moving targets, Wires. Resume. And may I just say... Just coming back to that very serious discussion we had earlier, yep. one of the main things in maintaining your own sense of, and I'm not talking mental health here, but keep your happiness levels up, is to have your happy place. And I know music is for you. It, well, can I just say, I mean, whilst we're all being, look, I, I had a, yeah, I had a, I had a shocking uh, afternoon on Monday after that news. And um, yeah, I, I really found some solace in music. So yeah. Absolutely. A happy place. It might be the garden. You know where my happy place is? Uh, the Greyhound track? No, the stove. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, no, I know. I you love were, cooking. Yeah, you do. Love cooking, and that's my happy place. I just, you know, can shut everything else out. I love feeding the family. Have a happy place. This is, not a, this is about happiness levels. So Rowan's is music. Now, our winner. It's a bit of a story. Strap yourselves in. It's a beauty. G'day gents, a long-time listener, first-time caller. I want to tell you about me and my mate Pete and our road trip from Perth to the 2015 AFL Grand Final. After West Coast made the Grand Final, surprisingly to me, and I got tickets in the ballot, my mate Pete and I investigated ways to get ourselves to Melbourne, keeping in mind I only found out we had tickets on the Sunday morning beforehand. After finding that flights and even tickets on buses were available for a price that would have got you a decent down payment on a Nick Spartel's renovation, we decided the best course of action was to drive. So we packed up the car and left his house at 2am on the Wednesday morning. Pete's work colleague, M, joined us. But as she slept for most of the entire trip, you'll hear very little about her. The trip started well. Excitement and anticipation was in the air. We had confidence and still plenty to talk about. As the sun came up, we took turns in guessing what a town's football club might be called, made up quizzes and listened to a few tunes. It was fun. We made the Nullarbor Roadhouse on our first full day of travel and pitched a tent on what must be the hardest ground and what must be in the windiest place in Australia. Sleep did not come. Around 4am, we decided enough was enough, packed up the spinnaker that our tent had become and hopped back into the car. Almost certain disaster was averted as Pete decided to turn right, heading back to Perth, and an argument ensued as we tried to work out which way to go, on what has to be the world's simplest intersection. We got on the right track eventually, and off we went. The next day was pretty uneventful, until we hit Adelaide, stopped for fuel and food, and decided to get back on the road. As we got back in the car, Pete asked me if I'd close the tailgate. Of course I did, I'm not an idiot. We pulled out on the road again, and didn't get very far before fellow motorists were pointing at the back of the wagon, mouthing, your tailgate's open. Turns out I am an idiot. (laughs) I hop out of the car and I'm running up and down the street picking up camping bits and pieces as pretty much everyone in Adelaide is laughing. After stopping for fuel in Keith, home of the Land Rover on a pole and birthplace of Jack Jack Redden, Pete announces to the car he'd like to go through to Melbourne that very night. 
At this stage, he's driven the whole trip. I've concentrated on staying awake to keep him awake. I run back into the servo, buy more Red Bull, and off we go. We arrive in Melbourne at 2am, 48 hours after we left, completely knackered. I spend Friday in a daze of sleep deprivation. Later, we fuel up on beer. There are West Coast jumpers everywhere. It feels like it's our year. The less said about the game, the better. Our seats were so high in the Ponsford stand, we needed oxygen. West Coast were absolutely outclassed. We stayed for the presentations, but had a pretty flat Saturday night. It seemed a long way to come to watch all of that. We decided to head home Sunday morning, quite a bit less excited than when we started out, in less of a rush. None of the stops seemed overly exciting, just a grind. Counting the kilometres to get home. We'd all been in pretty close confines for nearly a week, and we were all pretty tired. By now, we were heartily sick of each other's taste in music, had discussed every movie anyone had ever seen, and convinced ourselves that West Coast would never win another game, let alone a grand final. We finally arrived home on Wednesday Arvo. As we got out of the car, we all told each other we never, ever wanted to see each other again. I'm not entirely convinced it was a joke, but we all laughed anyway. Pete and I still watch footy together regularly. When I got tickets again for 2018, he asked if I wanted to drive over again. I couldn't face it. He went, and he took M again, and this time his son. So now it turns out that I'm the jinx. Thanks for reading and keep up the podcast. Oh, wow. From Clinton Bishop oh. in Perth. Well done, Clinton. That is a fantastic, what a magnum beautifully, opus that beautifully is. written, yeah, isn't no, it? That's a, if you want to write for footyology, Clinton, give us a... Give us a bell. Um, no, that that's a fantastic entry. Great story and a lot of work gone into that. So uh, I just love the drive back, the yeah. grind, the kilometres, all, all yeah. the fun. The, the towns didn't seem that interesting. I don't think I could ever do that drive. I've done as a little kid. I did the um, Indian Pacific or whatever it was called, Melbourne to Perth. But I don't think I could do the drive. That's just too too long a distance. I reckon. Great, uh, great entry. Well Clinton done, Clinton. Bishop, our winner. Clinton, if you could just send uh, send us another email with your address and your uh, T-shirt size and we will get a prize pack off to you. I need to reply You're to You're not going to drop that one off personally? No, not... Well, maybe. Do the long trip, the exciting I moment. Don't, I don't think you better find him. <laughs> it's made it sound exciting. No, knowing, knowing the way you operate and your car issues and whatever, nah. Don't, no, don't not do to do it. it. No, don't do it. Now, I've got an SMS from Terry Sarong, yep. whose father, Bill Sarong, of yep. course, played for Collingwood. Correct. And he remembered a, an interview that Jeffrey Poulter and I had done with Bill at SEN. Unfortunately, Bill, uh, Terry, I should say, um, my unexpected removal at SEN um, also meant that I was just very sadly unable to take much with me and it all happened very quickly and uh, whilst I attempted to recover many of these great interviews I was unable to do so so that's a a shame some of these are brilliant interviews with people who've passed away but um, I hope that they're still there and maybe you know over over a a beer or at some point I'll be able to retrieve them. Well, maybe someone from SEN who hears this can um, make some inquiries on our behalf. Yeah, it'd be good because not for myself, but for the family members of these great players, in many cases, it would be a, a final interview that they would savour and keep for posterity's sake. 
All right, uh, we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, thanks for your company. Hope your team had a good win or gets a good win this weekend. And uh, look, I know it's been a, a more somber episode today, but um, can't avoid that, unfortunately. And some things need to be talked about. And uh, I'm glad we did. And look, finally, I'll say it again: if you or someone you know needs any help uh, in that mental health sphere, you can contact Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636 or Lifeline on 131114 and our deepest condolences to the Frawley clan and uh, Danny's closest friends. And as this is Are You OK Day, don't feel that you are not qualified to at least start that discussion and listen to what people have to say as well as in many cases, handing over those important numbers. So everybody plays an important part in the lives of people close to them. It's just all about listening and having empathy. That's really the word. Here, here. Well done, Fanny. Uh, thank you. Big thanks again to Colin Tyrus, panelling and producing this show. In... Incorrect pronunciation. Oh? It's Colin Tyrus because he has been tireless in his... <laughs> devotion and patience with us. Anyone who puts up with us has to be tireless. No, thanks, Colin. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Uh, We're going to leave you uh, with an appropriate uh, song to farewell. Um, Of course, very sad, the passing of Danny Frawley. Um, What have we got in mind, Fanny? I think you picked out a special version. I'm connected to this song because I... (laughs) If you listen to the words, it's a very deep, meaningful and powerful song and it just happens to be Danny Boy.
fire, I'm dead. 